I remember reading a long time ago, uh, of course, this, this will age me, but on Mother's Day, it's number one day for people to take their mothers out to eat. Like, number one, restaurants have their busiest day on Mother's Day. So all you mothers that normally cook all year, uh, now is the day where you don't have to cook. Now, Father's Day, however, Father's Day is the number one day for collect phone calls. So you never want to talk to us when you finally do. We still have to pay for it. So, oh, here we go. All right, there's some trivia for you all. Uh, I'm Eric, by the way. Um, if I were smarter, uh, I would have had something lined up for Mother's Day, but I couldn't think of a title, so we got a title about leprosy or attempted murder, so it's not quite Mother's Day-ish, but ho- hopefully we'll, uh, we'll learn something good today. Um, I want to tell you a story about Jesus going to his homeland For the first time. This is right after he was tempted by Satan, and he goes back to Nazareth. And Nazareth's a little little bitty town. Everybody there should know Jesus, Joseph's son. And he goes into the synagogue like he normally does every Saturday. And he goes up front to read. And they give him the, the book of Isaiah, and he scrolls through the book of Isaiah, and he finds this passage in Isaiah, and he reads it. And it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And it says that everybody was amazed at Jesus. They sat there in in awe and wonder, and he did some great things. And Jesus says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the people are like, wow, this guy, this guy knows this stuff. This guy's amazing. And they, and they said they were in awe. And they said, is this Joseph's son? You know, standing up here and preaching? And, and you would think, well, this is a good thing. You know, Jesus is preaching. The men of Nazareth are impressed. This would be a good thing. And Jesus is, he doesn't say this, but I, I can imagine Jesus going, Guys, you don't, you don't get it. You, you just don't get it. Okay? You don't really understand what I'm up here preaching. And he says, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your own country. Okay? And what he's saying is, is these, pe- these people that lived in Nazareth, they're waiting for the Messiah. They've been waiting for the Messiah for a long time. And Jesus comes up here and says, I, I fulfilled this right now. We're fulfilling this right now. And they hear this, and Jesus said, no, you don't understand. He says, what you're going to want, you're going to want me to come save you in particular. Physician, come, and, come heal yourself. That means you're sick. Come and heal yourself. These people in Nazareth are going to say, we want you to come heal us, which really means we want a Messiah, a Savior, to come heal us from the oppression of Roman rule. When are we going to get our due? When are we going to get our day? And Jesus is like, you, you, you just don't get it. You know, I've come here and I appreciate you, but you just don't get it. And, he, and Jesus says, Surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. 
Jesus is back in his hometown. This is Nazareth, his hometown. Probably two, three hundred people. Everybody there should know Jesus. And he's saying, I'm not going to be accepted here, even in my hometown. Y'all aren't going to accept me. Y'all don't really understand what I'm preaching. You know, Jesus would, would go on later to say, you know, foxes have dens and birds have nests, you know, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is saying, I don't, I don't fit in in this home. You're not going to accept me in my home. And he says, let me tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. He's saying, look, you want me to come, you want me to come heal your land? You want me to come save Nazareth? Is that what you want me to do? He says, remember the days when there was a famine a long time ago in the book of Kings? Remember, remember those days when there was a famine? And there's plenty of widows in the land. And where did God send Elijah? He sent Elijah to a foreign country, to a pagan woman, to a widow of no substance. That's where he sent that person. That's where he sent Elijah. And then he says, there were many lepers in the time of Israel during the days of Elisha. There's plenty of lepers for God to heal. But who did he, what leper did he heal? He healed Naaman, the Syrian. Now this, at this point, the people went from thinking of Jesus in awe to being pretty dang angry. So angry, so full of wrath, it says, that they were prepared to kill him, and they were going to kill him. Why? Because he mentioned Naaman the Syrian. Now, you have to imagine in, in, in Nazareth right now, they were occupied by Roman rule. Like, Rome controlled all of Israel. And before Rome, it was Greece. Greece controlled Rome. And before Greece, it was Persia. Persia controlled Nazareth. And then before Persia, it was the Babylonians. And before the Babylonians, it was the Syrians. And up until the Syrians, it, the northern kingdom of Israel, they were free. They had their kings. They had everything. And then Syria comes along and demolishes them. It wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel so badly that they scattered out across the entire world. It's actually called the Diaspora where they just scattered. So about 500 years, give or take, before Jesus, the, Nazareth, the people of Nazareth were completely wiped out and didn't actually have a homeland again until 1948. So you can imagine how ticked off they are when Jesus comes and says, yeah, remember, remember when y'all were in need and God didn't send anybody to you? He sent it, he helped a Syrian? Well, you can just feel their blood just boiling. And they kicked Jesus out of the synagogue, drove him out of town, forced him to the edge of a cliff where they're about to push him off and kill him. And I'd imagine there's a lot of spitting and kicking and punching and no telling what along the way. And somehow Jesus escapes from the midst of them. So, Who's naming the, we're not going to talk about the, 
the, uh, the widow. That's a different story. But let's talk about Naaman the Syrian. I mean, since it literally calls the attempted murder of Jesus, who is Naaman? So, it says, Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Syria, which meant that he was a powerful, powerful man. And then back in these days, you didn't like rise to power, you know, through, you know, education and wheeling and dealing and, and being a good person. You rose through power through strength. I mean, you don't become the king of the Syrian army by being a nice guy. You become the king of the Syrian army by doing very brutal, brutal things on your way to conquest. You work your way up by how many villages you conquer and how many kingdoms you conquer. That's where this guy is. He's up there. There's only one person greater than Naaman, and that's the king of Syria. And probably at this time, there's probably nobody greater than the king of Syria. So that's Naaman. Extremely powerful man, but he had one flaw. He was a leper. There was nothing that Naaman couldn't get without just speaking it. I want this. I want this. I'm going to take this. I'm going to take this. There's one thing that he could not get, and that was healthy, clean skin. There's one thing he couldn't get rid of. No matter how, how hard he scrubbed or how many villages he conquered, leprosy was one thing he couldn't deal with. One thing it said, let me go back. This is kind of interesting. It says, the Lord had given victory to Syria. Which meant that God was on Naaman's side when Naaman was going out and conquering these places. And then it comes over here and it says, And the Syrians went out on raids and brought back the captive girl from the land of Israel. Which meant that Naaman was given power by God to go out and conquer Israel, God's people. Now, now why, why would God have Naaman go out and conquer people that was, he was called his? Naaman, now Naaman was not a good person. He certainly wasn't a good person, but he was a tool of the Lord to bring justice on Israel because Israel at this time was extremely corrupt. Their religion was perverted, and they were extremely sinful. Naaman was a tool of God for God's justice. Anyway, he goes out, one of the raiding parties, he raids this village, he takes a little girl, and this little girl, uh, who becomes this, this uh, little slave girl, is waiting on Naaman's wife, and she said, she tells the wife, hey, I know a guy, there's a guy in Israel that can save Naaman and heal him of his leprosy. And the wife tells Naaman, and Naaman's like, eh, might as well try it out. If, I, if this guy can heal my leprosy, let's do it. Okay. So Naaman goes to the king of Syria, the only man that he has to ask permission from. He goes to the king of Syria and says, King, I want to go to Israel. There might be a guy there that can heal me. And the king of Syria says, Look, I'll tell you what. I'm going to write you a letter. You give this letter to the king of Israel, 
and you tell them to heal you. Just, just do it. We're going to do it the way we do everything else. We just go out and take it. But Naaman goes to the one place in the world where power and religion don't mix. Now, in all the other kingdoms, you have the king, and you have his priests, and you have his prophets, and they pretty much do whatever the king wants. You know, the king goes to the prophets and says, am I going to win this battle? Do you think the prophets are going to go, oh, I don't think so. No, they're going to go, oh, yeah, king, you're the greatest king in the world. You're, our, you know, our bones and tea leaves tell us that you're going to win this battle. You know, when they go to the priest, the priests say, oh, yeah, you're going to win this battle. Let's just sacrifice this, and we'll sacrifice this, and the gods will be on your side. The king gets whatever he wants. And now he's going to a place where, where God is, is far, far above worldly power. So Naaman goes straight to where he thinks the power is. He thinks, he's, thinks the power. He goes straight to the king of Israel, and he brings with him tons of gold, Tons of silver and all kinds of fancy garments, you know, that were highly, highly expensive. And he goes to the king of Israel. Now, I can imagine the king of Israel is, he's panicking. Because Naaman, it's not like Naaman shows up with a few of his buddies and they got some wheelbarrows full of gold. When Naaman shows up places, he has an entire cavalry. He has an entire army with him. He has an entourage of I don't know how many. And he doesn't just knock on the door, you know, to the king's city, they open the doors for him. And he goes in and he says to the king of Israel, I got a, lo- a note here from the king of Syria, who, who is, by the way, far greater than you. He says, you need to heal me of my leprosy. And at this point, the king of Israel starts to panic. He's like, oh no. The king of Israel has just commanded me to heal this guy, and I, I can't heal this guy. I mean, my prophets and my priests can't heal this guy because everybody really knows that's a farce anyway. He says, there's no way. There's no way. He panics. He flips out. He's thinking the king of Syria is setting him up for failure so that he can be attacked. You know, he tears his clothes off in panic. And he tells Naaman, I can't do it. I can't do it. And Naaman is, let's just say, probably a little bit more than upset. So what does he do with his entire entourage, entire army, and gold? But luckily, Elijah, or Elisha hears of this. Elisha hears of this and says, tell Naaman to come my way. Now at this point in time, Elisha was like the only prophet, the only true prophet in Israel at this point. There was very few true followers of God in Israel. And Elisha says, tell him to come my way. So of course... Naaman takes all of his stuff, gathers his entourage, gathers his army, goes to Elisha. And when he finally gets to Elisha, he sends his servants in to get Elisha, and Elisha doesn't come out. So I can imagine Elisha probably lives in this little bitty hut, maybe a little cottage, I don't know. It's certainly not great because he's, he's a poor prophet. And he's probably surrounded by a massive army, massive cavalry, containers full of gold and silver, and you figure Elisha would come out and, you know, give him the, the homage that Naaman deserves, but he doesn't. He sends out a servant. Like, Elisha's, 
I don't know if he's too busy or, or what, but he sends out a servant, and this really infuriates Naaman. So Naaman is like probably steam coming out of his ears. He's so upset that Elisha, the great prophet he's been hearing about, doesn't even come out to him. He sends a servant out to him. And I imagine Naaman is probably wanting to just cut some people open just for fun. And, the, and the, not only that, the servant comes out and says, go to the River Jordan, dunk yourself in it seven times, and you'll be healed of your leprosy. Now this infuriates Naaman even more. Because now Naaman is thinking to himself, is this it? I just go to the river, dunk myself, and I'm healed? That's, that's, that's not going to happen. That's impossible. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And he's furious. Okay? Now, what kept Naaman from killing Elisha? I have no idea. Okay? He's probably thinking to himself, well, maybe Elisha's one of these weird, you know, guru types that hang on top of mountains and, you know, do, do weird things. Maybe he's just really eccentric and he's hiding out in his cottage. But so for some reason, he didn't kill Elisha and he starts to leave. And a couple of his servant, servants are like, Naaman, why don't you go, why don't you just go try it? Why don't you just go try? Now, now, Damon is thinking to himself, it's, it's stupid. And his servants are like, if they told you to do something great, you probably would have done it. And Damon's like, yeah. If, if, if Elisha would have come out and said, I need you to go kill three dragons and slay this lion and kill this bear and bring me, you know, the stone of the sorcerer, you know, from the mountain or whatever. Eli, Eli, Naaman would have been like, all right, let's do it. No, because in Naaman's mind, he has to do something great in order to achieve something that nobody else can give him. Because he knows the healing power is somewhat cosmic. You know, there's nobody that can heal him. There's no king. Nothing's worked yet. Something cosmic's got to happen. So therefore, some great task has got to go forth. You know, like Lord of the Rings or something. You know, if, you, if they would have told Naaman to go slay a dragon, I guarantee you Naaman would have pulled out his sword to go slay the dragon. But instead they said, just go, go in that river and dunk seven times and you'll, you'll be healed. And he's like, there's no way. Like, you are stupid. Like, yeah, slay a dragon, yeah. You know, the 12 task of Hercules, yeah, that would make sense. But to go in a river, and he says, why the Jordan? That Jordan is a pretty terrible river, river to begin with. We have way better rivers in Syria. Like, I can go dunk myself in the rivers in Syria instead of that stupid Jordan River. And his servants are like, dude, just try it. They said, I'm... Probably it couldn't hurt, but they said, if they told you to do something great, you would have done it. Well, they're telling you to do something simple. You know, if, if Elisha really does have authority, then do it. And you could, you could see Naaman probably thinking to himself, you know what, I'm a man of authority. If I tell somebody to do something, they do it. I don't have to tell them twice. If Elisha is really who they say he is and he has authority, go try it. And Naaman goes and tries it. He dunks himself into the Jordan seven times, and he is healed. 
And at that point, he realizes that there is only one true God, and that's the God of Israel. You, you take somebody as powerful as Naaman, who can do anything he wants in the entire world except get rid of his spots, and it takes the one true God to heal him. You, you can see how humbling of an experience that would be for Naaman. Okay? And that story right there is what got Jesus almost killed by his own neighbors. Probably a few aunts and uncles in there, I'm sure. That one story right there got Jesus almost thrown off a cliff. What we, what we learn here is that there are two types of people in this world. There are people like the men of Nazareth. These men of Nazareth, these were the, your self-righteous people. These are the people who believe that they deserve mercy and grace. Like they're at the synagogue. They do everything right. You know, they're, they're, some poor, they're poor people oppressed by a, a great evil empire. And they believe that they deserve righteousness. Okay? They check out all the boxes. It's kind of like us. We check off the boxes. Okay, went to church, you know, gave my tithes, you know, gave some money to the homeless guy standing on the side of the road. I vote for the right party. I'm American. All right, I checked off all my boxes. I'm pretty sure I'm saved. I'm pretty sure God deserves to give me things. Those are the kind of people of Nazareth, and, and Jesus clearly understands that these people don't know what they're talking about. You know, these people believe they have something to offer. Okay? And then we have Naaman. Naaman is a different kind of person. Naaman is the kind of person that believes he's not righteous, but he can earn it. I can just earn my righteousness. If you just tell me to do something, or if, if I struggle hard enough, let's say, with my sin, I can earn my righteousness. But the problem with earning righteousness is, and we've all done it, you know, let's say we have a sin in our lives and we maybe clear ourselves up for that sin. Maybe, maybe, maybe for a month, maybe for a year, and we start to think pretty positively about ourselves. And then all of a sudden something hits us and we make, it makes ourselves feel pretty crappy again. And then you're like, oh, I thought God was with me, and now God is not with me anymore. I've, I've embarrassed myself in front of God. I've shamed myself in front of God. God is going to find me undeserving. These are the kind of people like Naaman. You know, our sins are way too great to just dunk ourselves in the river seven times. Like, our sins are so great that... There's very, very little of what we can do can save us. Um, you know, the, the, the sins are there. The people, at, the people at the top, they can't see their sins. They look at their hands, and they're clean. They can't see their sins. And people like Naaman, I don't know if you are Shakespeare fans, but people like Naaman are like Macbeth, Lady Macbeth, where she commits some murders, and her hands look clean, but she sees blood all over them. She can't scrub her hands hard enough to get the blood off. That's Naaman. 
There's nothing I can do to get rid of my spots. I mean, I need something great to get rid of my spots. At some point in our life, we're like one of these two people. In fact, every one of us is like one of these two people. We either think our sins are not great enough, or we think our sins are too much. We look at God and, and, and think that, yeah, we're good enough. Or we look at God and wonder if we'll ever be good enough. Until we're born again, this, this, is, this is the two types of people in this world. And I almost titled this sermon, Two Types of People, but there is a third type of person out there. We kind of forget about the little slave girl. I mean, she's, she's not even mentioned by name in the, in the book. But this little slave girl is the hero of the story. This little slave girl is, has been exiled from her home. It says that Naaman went out and conquered some villages, did some raids on villages. Now, back in the old days, you had two types of towns. You had towns that were fortified by cities, like fortified by walls, massive walls, you know, where it might take years to break into a city. Or, and you had little bitty villages outside, and these villages outside were weak, they were poor, and they were very vulnerable. They had no walls. They had nothing to protect them. That's where this little girl was from. This little girl was from a little village that had no walls, no protection, very, very vulnerable. For a Syrian army to raid one of these villages would be nothing. To go in and slaughter whoever you wanted, burn whatever you wanted, take whatever you wanted, would be nothing at all. Nobody would even help you. So you can imagine this little girl, her dad was probably killed. If he was of a fighting age, he would have been killed. Her mom, bad things would have happened to her. Then she would have been taken away from her little village. And the rest of her life, bad things would have been happening to her. She probably had quite a few brothers and sisters who were probably sold off piecemeal as different servants, different slaves somewhere. And she was happened, happened to be sold off to a slave, as a slave to Naaman's wife. This girl started her life off vulnerable, and now she finishes her life off vulnerable. But for her to say, hey, I know how Naaman can heal his spots. That was extremely costly because Naaman is the man who is responsible for the massacre and rape and pillage of your entire village. That man is responsible for every misery you now face in life. You were not a slave, and now you're a slave because of Naaman. Do you know how costly it is to forgive Naaman? You'll never see your father. You'll never see your mother. You'll never see your siblings. You'll be a slave the rest of your life. It's extremely costly for her to forgive Naaman and want the best for him at the same time. 
Who does this remind us of? Who, who lived in exile? Who was taken from his home? Who, who was made vulnerable? This is the third type right here. Well, let's go back to this. This is the third type. If you can't see Christ in this little girl, then you can't see Christ. Christ was removed from his home. Christ was removed from two homes. Not only did Christ have a perfect home in heaven, he was exiled from his home and made to live here in a pretty pathetic world, especially compared to heaven. His own home of Nazareth, even when he comes here, his own home of Nazareth, they try to murder him. Like, he has no home. He is vulnerable. When they, when they strip him of his clothes and beat him, he's just like that little village that has no walls. They're just stripped wide open, and you can do anything you want to them. That little village is Christ's body just being ravished. And there's nothing you can do about it. That's where that little girl came from. That's what that little girl is. Nobody forgave more than Christ. Yes, that little slave girl forgave Naaman, but Christ forgave every one of us. And he didn't have to. And he didn't have to. This is what Jesus read to the men of Nazareth. Let's go over it again. Because this is what Naaman and the slave girl stand for. He says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Now, what do they mean by the poor? They don't mean people without money. They mean people who are poor in spirit. And when I, like, when I think of poor in spirit, I don't think that you don't have anything. It's that you don't have anything to offer. You have nothing to offer. When, when it comes time for salvation, what are you going to offer God? What can you offer God that he doesn't have anything of? There's nothing you can offer God. That little girl had nothing to offer. Who's more poor than a slave girl who had her entire village massacred? She has nothing to offer. The only thing she has to offer are words. Now, what's more powerful? Her words are Naaman's power. Naaman had all the power in the world, and this little girl had words. You know, words of the Bible. Words that her mother probably taught her. This is why it's a good Mother's Day message. Because this little girl wouldn't have known God's word. She wouldn't have known God at all if it wasn't for her mother and her father you know, raising her up in the right way. Her mother and father are probably now dead, but she at least has God's word. That's all she has to offer. There's nothing else she has to offer. Naaman had everything to offer. There's nothing that he couldn't do in the world, and yet his power... It's down here, and that little girl who had nothing, her power is up here. That's why God says, I will come in weakness. My power will be in weakness. What's more weak than a little girl? 
What's more weak than a naked man hanging on a cross? He says, sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Who's more brokenhearted than this little girl? It certainly wasn't the men of Nazareth. They weren't brokenhearted. They were pretty arrogant. Who's more brokenhearted than a little girl who has her brothers and sisters taken away from her? Jesus says, I I come to proclaim liberty to the captives. Who's more captive than people who are enslaved? Who's more captive than people who know that they are dead? Who's more captive than the people who know that they are dead in sin? And there's nothing that they can do to cleanse their spots. Who's more captive than that? He says, I'm opening the prison of those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now this is funny. Those last two lines up here, Jesus left off in his sermon. When he was preaching to the men of Nazareth, he left these two lines off. He read, the, he read Isaiah 61 and then stopped. But Isaiah 61 keeps going. Isaiah 61 continues on and says, In the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. I don't know why he didn't read it to the men of Nazareth. They might have gotten real excited about talking about vengeance. But God brings vengeance on people in order to bring comfort. The men of Nazareth weren't trying to bring comfort. They were trying to bring comfort to themselves, but they wanted vengeance. They wanted vengeance bad. They wanted vengeance on the Syrians, on the Babylonians, on the Persians, on the Greeks, on the Romans. They wanted vengeance on everybody. And Jesus says, no, I'm not here to bring vengeance. I'm not here to bring vengeance on Rome. I'm here to bring vengeance on myself. Because unless I experience the vengeance, there will be no comfort in this world. So, if you really know Isaiah 61, which I think those men did, they didn't know Jesus. They didn't know the kind of comfort he would really bring to those who are really poor in spirit. So that's the story of Naaman, and that's the story of how Jesus was almost killed by his own family members. So let's bow our head in prayer. Lord, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for Christ. I want to thank you that he came to bring comfort for us who mourn. Lord, and on this Mother's Day, let's remember when God compared himself to a mother hen who spread her wings out wide and comforted her little chicks. So whenever we see our mothers and we see what our mothers did for us, let us think of Christ and all the sacrifices he made for the world. In Jesus' name, amen.